Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to episode 37 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. You know, in this episode, I want you to join me in a conversation with Ken McLeod. Ken's a deeply experienced Buddhist practitioner, translator, teacher, and author who focuses primarily on Tibetan Buddhist texts and practices. Ken's study of Buddhism began in 1970 when he met his principal teacher, Kalu Rinpoche, who was a senior meditation teacher in the Karma Kagyu tradition and the lineage holder of the Shangpa tradition. Ken went on to translate for Kalu Rinpoche during his early North American tours in the early 1970s, and he helped develop Rinpoche's first North American center in Vancouver, British Columbia. Ken studied with many other teachers, which you can read more about in an extensive biography I have on my website. And he was eventually authorized by Kalu Rinpoche to teach, and he was appointed the head of Rinpoche's Los Angeles Center in 1985. But Ken began exploring different teaching methods, emerging as somewhat of a rebel in 1995 when he presented a consultation client model of Buddhist teaching at a Buddhist teacher's conference. Now that model differed from the center teacher and minister church sort of models that um, were more prevalent and still are prevalent. But now, with the benefit of perfect hindsight, we can see that he was at the forefront of something that has become almost common today, um, this consultant-client model, um, throughout Buddhist traditions, especially in our Western culture. Although Ken is trained in and taught and writes more traditional material, he does offer a unique teaching approach to the traditional material. And although he's no, no longer formally teaching, I promise you that the vast material you find on his website, Unfettered Mind, and in his books um, will offer some of the most direct teaching of Buddhism you can find today without being face-to-face, -face, which is sort of contradictory to what he prefers, but that's another story, and you'll see that in the podcast. I will have links to his website and his books on my website for your later review. Um, but as, a, as an intro to why I wanted Ken McLeod on my podcast and why I wanted to share his insights with you, it was because of his practical and non-dogmatic style of teaching the traditions. It attracted me to his work, and it is what I believe listeners of this podcast will be fascinated by and will learn from. Now, my conversation with Ken is coming right up, but first, a few announcements. At, there's always a few announcements, right? 
But at the risk of boring you in the first part of these podcasts, I have to say again and again, my book was released in late November, and I've heard from many of you that you bought the ebook or you bought the paper book back and that you're enjoying it and learning from it. And so it's it's just a wonderful feeling to be able to share this uh, work that I've been doing for the last year plus with uh, many of you out there who listen to my podcast and those who follow me on Facebook, etc. If you haven't yet, though, please go to Amazon and purchase a copy of the ebook or paperback for yourself or to share with someone you might who might need it or someone you think it would help guide them in the coming year. And when you've finished it, please go back to Amazon to review the book. Reviews are extremely important, so I'd love to get the number of reviews up there so more people can discover the book, the podcast, and the whole everyday Buddhism way of being in the world. In podcast news, in addition to this episode with Ken McLeod, I have a couple more special guests coming up this year uh, so far on the schedule, and I'm sure there'll be more as the year goes on. Um, first we'll be talking about modern tantric Buddhism. We'll be talking about the, uh, bestseller and well thought of book, the American Sutra, and what should also be an interesting episode about music for meditation, healing, and transformation. In other everyday Buddhism news, membership in the public Facebook group is well, I'm going to use this word, exploding. We're at about 1,200 members right now. And our virtual sangha keeps growing too. We're at about 20 members, about 18 active members. If you're interested, please check it out. The virtual sangha is a wonderful, warm, and loving place to support each other in our practice, in the practice that is life, and learning more tips and tricks and share what we're learning. Details and a link for joining the Everyday Sangha can be found on the first page of the Everyday Buddhism website, www.everyday-buddhism.com. Check it out. If a virtual Sangha meeting at 7.30 p.m. Eastern U.S. time is possible for you. The next Sangha meeting is January 23rd, and we usually meet every other week on Thursday evenings. Now, because of the continuous interest and growth in these groups, as promised, I have been working hard on establishing a more integrated membership community offering for those that might want to explore beyond just the public Facebook group or who aren't able to join the Everyday Sangha on Thursday evenings. This is now in process. With the help of one of my Bright Dawn Center of Oneness Buddhism lay minister colleagues, Levi Shinyo Walbert. Levi Shinyo Sensei is helping me plan and build the community. He is helping me build a new YouTube channel for us, and he will be contributing content and guidance to the new membership community, as well as helping lead the Everyday Sangha and creating special podcasts with me. Um, look for those. They should be fun. Both Levi, Shinyo, and I have a deep interest and educational background in philosophy, so our 
our conversations um, are going to be bonus conversations, but I think many of you will enjoy them. So look forward to an exciting year coming up and keep your eyes and ears open for an announcement of the launch of the new membership community. So now on to the conversation with our very special guest, Ken McLeod. It was a fascinating fun and challenging conversation for me since Ken focuses on making sure we are absolutely aligned around the same meaning of words and terms. It is that kind of focus, specific focus on things as they are, not as we conceptualize them, that makes Ken a great teacher and conversation partner. You might note that my conversation with Ken was substantial but ended abruptly as he had an important call to answer. But if I have my wish, I hope we can invite him back for another conversation about the vertical dimension we talk about in this episode and also what makes our paths as followers of Shakyamuni Buddha something more than what might be termed secular Buddhism something more than just making our lives better or finding community, but of having a different relationship with life and a quote, another dimension of what it means to be a human, unquote. I hope you will find it as fascinating as I did in this conversation as Ken and I talk about pragmatic Buddhism and the range of meanings of, of the word pragmatic, the range that all those meanings can connote, and the difference between secular Buddhism and pragmatic Buddhism. We talk about the vertical dimension, as I said, and mysticism, uh, about Buddhist practice as a calling and as an art, and how virtual in the sense of virtual sanghas, virtual everything that we do virtual, is really maybe just simulation and why we might have to live our, leave our living room sometimes. And most importantly, Ken leaves us with the call to follow our awe. So without any more talking about what this conversation is about, let's get to the conversation. Thank you for joining me today, Ken. Um, I'm really excited about our conversation. Uh, I uh, I explained a little bit in my intro here to my podcast listeners that um, you've been around forever. Um, you've written forever, not forever. I don't mean to call you ancient, but um, you've been around as long as I've been studying Buddhism. And I was almost I couldn't believe that I hadn't run into you, if so to speak, in, in reading. Um, you know, writing in Tricycle, your books, uh, I had studied in Tibetan Buddhism. So I was very shocked, really, that I hadn't. And then I came across you this year. And, and then I was like, wow, unbelievable. Um, <laughs> well, Wendy, you'll just have to get out more. I know. I guess so. I, I definitely. I must have been very insular and didn't know it. Um, but but anyway. So I discovered you. So hooray! And I'm glad. And um, and and another thing that I explained in my intro to my podcast listeners was that um, that although you're you know you're steeped in 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 the traditional aspects of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, practice, uh, uh, theory, translation, uh, 
everything Tibetan, including two, three-year retreats, um, you, you teach in a way that cuts to the chase. Um, and, and that's the thing that attracted me when I first discovered you recently. Um, and, and, it, and it's like the, you take the traditional text um, and, and you use the words of the traditional text. And when you're teaching, you do the same thing, but it definitely in your books, this is the, the case. Um, and then you make it so clear that the, the teachers of that time had all the same problems we had. They were just like us because you incorporated in your own experience and kind of I don't want to say spit it back out. I it, sorry, but you incorporate it in your own experience. It becomes this uh, gumbo of their words and your words and your practice and your experience. And and what happens is is that um, it, it takes us directly into the experience of it. And it's it's I'm not going to use the word magical, but it's a, it's a, such a wonderful direct approach. And that's why I call it cutting to the chase. Um, and what I think is the m- power of it is it is that it makes people it forces them to stop dancing with intellectual concepts right and and look at it as a direct experience that they can incorporate in their life um and and that's what i think is is just wonderful and what i'd like to convey to my podcast listeners um so how did you come to this view and teaching um, and it from someone who has been so, like I said, steeped in the traditions, how did you come to this view and teaching philosophy? And a couple of add-ons, and if you can remember it good, if not, we'll go back, is, is that um, how, how do you and do you incorporate it into your personal practice, um, if either now or then or whatever? So. Um, that's my first sort of question to 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 see where we go. Well, uh, thank you for a very lovely uh, introduction. And now you have made this interview a completely impossible, a set of completely inaccessible high bar for this interview. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think I think I think you'll rise to the occasion. I'm so glad you have faith in me. Uh, Well, how did I come to it? And the the two parts of the question that I understand from you are, how did I come to this? uh, I wouldn't say philosophy of teaching, but approach to teaching. And uh, what connection does that have to my personal practice? Is that right? That's right. Well, there are more than a few teachers who didn't exactly practice what they preached. And, and, and so that's part of the reason I was picking up that, what I felt was an implication, maybe an inference on my part, that uh, there was this distinction between your, your personal practice and your philosophy of teaching, because that is certainly the case. In, uh, and actually, I'd say it was fairly widespread, frankly. And uh, <clears throat> for me, uh, I can say pretty, ga- pretty categorically, uh, I want, it, it, it isn't. Uh, I, I'm, I'm using the past. I'm tempted to use the past because I no longer teach um, for reasons I explained to you in some of our email exchanges. 
the uh, but for me teaching was an expression or a form i'm not sure what the right word is of my practice and uh there's a phrase in tibetan uh called uh mepa and uh what it means is uh no difference between private and public and uh that's taken as one of the uh ethical guidelines i think ethical is the right word there ethical slash practice guidelines yeah and uh i took it seriously so now in many respects uh I'm kind of natural teacher, and that is teaching comes to me very naturally. Uh, I used to do, I did a little of teaching in mathematics because that's what my degrees are in. Uh, and uh, that just came very naturally. And frankly, I taught it exactly the same way that I taught uh, Buddhism. That is, I have to give you an example. <laughs> I was teaching a, uh, at a community college in Canada, uh, adult, um, adults who were coming back to get their high school certificates. And one woman, uh, I guess in her mid-twenties or so, uh, the way the class worked is that we, uh, they, they were working through their books and whenever they uh, exercised and then whenever they had problems, they would ask me a question, I would go over and coach them. So it was, it was a coaching rather than teaching. It was, it was very, and they could proceed at their own rate and they got individual attentions. It actually worked very well. And the class size made it workable. So one woman said she had a problem and she was doing word problems. You know how popular word problems are in math. And, and, and so she came up, put her book on my desk and said, I can't see how to do this. And I read over the problem and I looked at her and I said, and I asked her one question. And then I asked her another question. And she was able to answer each question with very little difficulty. Just thought for a moment and said, yeah. And then I asked the second question, she answered that. I said, do you, do you now see how to, see, uh, how to do the problem? And she thought for a minute. <laughs> then she slammed her fist on my desk with such force that it started the rest of the class. <laughs> and she said, I can't believe this. I've been struggling with this for an hour and you solve it in two seconds. And I said, just a second. Uh, first, I had to quiet the class down because they thought I'd hit her or something. <laughs> and uh, then I said, all I did was to ask you two questions. And now you can see how to do the problem. <laughs> what you have to do is learn how to ask those questions of yourself. And she went back to her desk and just tore through all of the problems in that section of the book, you know? And, and so th this is about not communicating information, but a, a, a communicating how to, uh, how to approach things so that the answers reveal themselves to you. And that's what I try to do when I teach people how to practice and how to meditate and mm. how, it, works in their lives and all of that. 
It's not like you mm. do this and this will happen. It's yeah. You know, and 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 so what I do is is actually teach a certain kind of questioning, which I hope leads in a good direction. Yes, I've listened to some of your um, podcast and audio snippets on 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 your your website on fettered mind and um that clearly your your approach is obvious in how you do that um i'm always you know when you're looking at it from an observing point of view you don't always get the 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 full sense of as if you were that person who was struggling and and you're getting those questions answered asked of you so you don't always get the full sense of the aha um so can sometimes when i'm listening to some of these i've wondered how did they get there? You know, they, they seem to get it. I, how did they get there? Um, but it wasn't asked of me, so it wasn't direct. Um, but that that's the kind of thing, and I could be wrong about this, but you kind of hinted at it, I think, and this is where I could get into trouble, um, uh, is that not all teachers um, practice what they preach or actually are, are teachers in the way that they actually practice. Um, uh, and, and you are. Well, I, I try to. Let's 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 be fair here. It's a uh, it's it's a uh, you know what I talked about. Cut to the chase. It's a it's a direct, um, cut to the chase kind of sense I get even when reading your book. Not even having an indirect, uh, you know, teaching experience with you or a communication with you. Just in reading the book that, or even an article. That's the, sort of the sense I got. Um, but one of the the things that well, I was trying to get out of here about the other teachers, what I found was that this is rare in my experience. Now I, I've had that experience mostly, and I will say this with a really uh, Tibetan Lama's teachers where they just say things and you don't quite know that they're teaching really, or it doesn't sound like they're teaching, but you have a direct, uh, experience and then it leads somewhere for you. And and I actually had with my current teacher, who I always say he teaches insidiously. Um, it never sounds like he's teaching at all ever. Um, and he just makes off the wall uh, what sound like off the wall comments. And then I, I I totally learned something. So there is that. But what I'm seeing more and more of in our culture of um, teachers and uh, I don't know, you know, meditation coaches and all these people um, is that they're mostly lecturing, right? Mostly. Uh, it, it, I mean, is, I don't know whether that's just my sense of it. You're, you're being kinder than I. <laughs> okay. I thought I was being cruel using the but yeah. <laughs> uh, Because if you, there's an article I wrote a long time ago, which many people have found useful, called, uh, and you can find it on my website, What Are You Looking For in a Teacher? And in that article, I think I sketch out nine different teacher roles. Uh, teacher, guru, uh, mentor, coach, therapist, etc. And uh, one of the ones that... Uh, needs to be considered, at least in a spiritual context, is preacher. And, 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 what a, and uh, preaching is a form of communication. Yeah. Uh, 
And there are many people who are extremely effective at uh, communicating uh, feeling and intensity and motivation and aspiration that way. Uh, but it, it's actually a one-way communication. Yeah. Yeah, the, the preacher is preaching to congregation. Uh, for whatever reason, I uh, that form of communication never appealed to me. Right, right. It has some value, I think, in some ways, um, in that I have been inspired or motivated. There, you know, there's an inspirational quality. It, obviously, you're not going to pick up practice in, unless you're inspired to pick up practice by somebody somewhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, they have their roles, but um, I, sometimes, but I don't know, it's not the kind of teaching that I was referring to when I was originally talking about your methodology or approach to it. Yeah, and I'm not a preacher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess a, a lot of good. I, there's there. You're right. It does seem like that 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 there there are a lot of different roles to play, and they all they all have their value um, to different people at different times, or you know, at person, place, and time. Right. And that that's how it all works. Um, you know, this gets us to this the sort of the pragmatic approach that you're you're your uh, teaching approach has been described as, and I think you've even described it as that I've read in things. Um, well, I'm not sure. It was the tagline for unfettered mind, pragmatic. Clearly that, that uh, cut to the chase, cut to the chase is pragmatic, right? I mean, it's, it is, uh, it's, it's how can we incorporate it in our lives right this minute or now, or in, in a way that is practical for that, Student. Well, I think uh, I think we need to distinguish between two uh, meanings of, of pragmatism. Um, okay. And I didn't really uh, I didn't really become aware of uh, or, or make this distinction until uh, my friend and colleague Stephen Batchelor came up with secular Buddhism. Uh, there is, when I originally, my intention for using the term pragmatic is let's practice in a way that actually works. Right. Now, uh, again, works needs some de definition in that sentence because, uh, and, and this leads us into a very different area. A lot of people approach uh, come to Buddhism because uh, their lives doesn't, don't work for them in some way. And uh, so they come to Buddhist practice or other disciplines uh, because they want to make their lives work better. And that could be styled as pragmatic Buddhism. How do you, your lives work better? You know, um, but the other interpretation is that uh, there you are practicing and uh, you don't understand what you're doing and you're confused and you've got all of the stuff going on. It doesn't really matter whether it's Zen or it's Theravadan or it's Tibetan. Uh, and you, you, you struggle with it. Uh, and what I found is that people could struggle with actually quite 
small points of meditation for months and I could take care of them, with, you know, with a two or three minute conversation. Uh, and, and then they would think, and so that was my idea of practice, uh, a pragmatic, it was, it was, you know, really working and engaging the techniques in a way that actually worked for you in terms of deepening your experience in, in your relationship with life, which is different from making your life better. Yeah, sort of expedient means, or am I pushing the envelope there? Uh, you're pushing the envelope. Okay. Well, you know, it's very hard. And I said this in some of our email exchanges, unless you have a pre, um, pre, predefined glossary of terms, right? Um, it is it, pretty hard to like, uh, agree on every, every concept that we throw about here. But, um, but I get that. I get the expedient. What was the, what was the two ways? I'm not sure I caught that the two ways of, of looking at pragmatic, I got the second way, but but that what did the secular Buddhism have to do with that? How viewing pragmatic as a way of making your life better, right? Or or viewing pragmatic as a way of being able to practice better. Oh, okay, okay, gotcha. And that's why the secular Buddhism approach, yeah, is, is more towards making your life better. Right, right. It it's it's. Uh, Which I don't think is what Stephen intended originally. He had a very different meaning for secular, but that's how many people have interpreted. It. And how it continues to live on, I believe. In in in, it has a life of its own. I'm seeing. Um, I don't know if that's his intention, and I I had a feeling from hearing from from following him and uh, that would not be his intention, but that's what I. Uh, uh, yeah. Things do take on a life of their own and it's <laughs> unfortunate sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm not sure you know, from some of our, a couple of our email exchanges, I wasn't sure that you even do Facebook that much, but um, there's a, I don't know how many, there's a lot of, there are many, 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 many Facebook groups that focus on secular Buddhism, and and then the opinions are bandied about, and 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 the, uh, and and sort of hard and fast rules are put down as what is secular Buddhism, what is not secular Buddhism, and it's just I it, I find it a shame. I, I'm, clearly, it's it's me getting older, but I, I I find it a shame that people seem to be getting very very confused about what that intention might have been in secular Buddhism is what you're referring to by, by these groups that um, um, make people think that, you know, if you think this, then you can't be a, a Buddhist at all or, or well, you're. But I think we need to take a, that might be helpful to look at that a little more carefully. The, you have all of this activity, as you say, on Facebook and I, I, limit my exposure to Facebook for a number of reasons, which I'm sure many of your listeners will understand. Yes, it's smart, actually. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Wish I could. But, the, uh, but all of that activity uh, could be viewed as an expression of a certain yearning. Uh, people are looking for something. Uh, and the question then is, is, what are they looking for? Many people are looking for uh, ways just to improve their lives. Uh, you know, and people like John Kabat-Zinn, mindfulness-based uh, stress reduction and so forth, have gone a long way to answering the, that kind of thing. And uh, then uh, 
other people are looking for a community of like-minded people, ethical values, and so forth and so forth. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, then there are other people who feel a kind of calling or, uh, you know, they may not even be able to put in words, but they're looking, they're actually looking for a different relationship with life. And uh, that is to say, they, they aren't looking to make their lives better, <laughs> really, and they aren't looking for a community to join and be part of and you know, uh, belong to. They're, they're, looking, they're looking for a, a quite a different relationship with life. And I think that's what <clears throat> uh, Buddha's, I mean, if you go back to Buddha Shakyamuni, that's what Buddha was looking for. He wasn't looking for a way to make his life better. <laughs> and he wasn't looking for a community. He was looking for a fundamentally different relationship with life. And he didn't know where to go. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, one of the, I could use the word tragedy, it's probably a little strong, certainly challenge of the modern era, is that the, uh, what I like to call the vertical dimension is pretty well denied. That is, uh, you know, we're human beings and as such, we are made of matter and everything. And we just have to make the best of these circumstances. And, and, and it takes out this other dimension of humanity, which is uh, maybe captured by uh, Browning's uh, for, uh, couplet, uh, a man's reach, and excuse the gender language, and it's, but a man's reach should exceed his grasp of what's a heaven for. That is, uh, we aspire to something other than just uh, things that have been taken care of quite well in the animal world, <laughs> you know. Uh, and and uh, that's not for everybody, absolutely, but there are who are looking for something beyond what we might say the ordinary uh, uh, conventional aspects of life. And I think that all that activity you see on Facebook is an expression of that, but like uh, Shakyamuni Buddha, they don't know where to go. So they're, they're doing, they're setting up these things and engaging all these conversations. Uh, but it doesn't work actually, because you got to get out and do it. See, that's, that's just it. And that, and that leads me to a couple things. We, you know, we exchanged a couple of broad, uh, topics we might explore and we're kind of bumbling into them already right now. Um, but one of them is, uh, we're not actually, I don't think we're bumbling actually, we're, we're, we're actually purposefully going into them. Um, but one of the topics was, um, that relationship and you brought it up just now with that 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 other the third thing the vertical dimension what i i also refer to it as the vertical dimension as well is the um uh and and i'm going to lead it to this and i know you're probably going to find fault with this too a little bit but um the relationship such a terror to talk with <laughs> <laughs> well i i well you know you'll learn you'll learn your guess <laughs> You learn what's coming, um, but it's okay. I'm going to keep doing what I do, and, and we see where we go. Uh, but the uh, the relationship between a pragmatic approach and um, and the and in both of the the ways in which we've talked of pragmatic approach already, and 
maybe what you would call a vertical approach and maybe what could be referred to and this this is this is really going to be problematic because the terms are so it's going to be a problem but let's just throw it out here mysticism mm -hmm. spiritual at spirituality um all these things um there's there's sort of a concept that that's either or like pragmatism is on one side of the the uh the teeter-totter and uh um spirituality or and or mysticism or any other word you want to use uh the vertical approach if you will maybe even that is on the other side of the teeter-totter and 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 i that if there is a balance i don't know if any people don't know how to find it or if they want it so one of the things i see is this this like either or approach um people either or and they only get into the other in my experience if they start in secular it leads them to the other through practice but that's if they really practice so what's your thoughts on this and 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 tell me where i'm wrong about even thinking of it in this way well i'm not sure that the teeter-totter is the right metaphor okay uh what i found helpful <clears throat> quite helpful actually is uh, to consider the analogy of art and i find probably music is the best form of art to uh, use in this analogy well i think most musicians know a lot more about renunciation than most practitioners because I, I used to know a uh, record producer in, uh, or a music producer in uh, LA. And she said, it's harder to become a star rock musician than it is to become a major league baseball player. Uh, because what does your life consist of? And if you read Bruce Springsteen's biography, you see this, and absolutely. It consists of years and years and hours and hours of on the road, driving, playing gigs, developing your art, when everybody in your family and your friends is telling you, what are you doing with your life? This is never going to go anywhere. And most of the time it doesn't. Uh, you know, and the amount of conventional life that artists sacrifice, renounce, whatever word you want, for their art uh, is phenomenal. Right. Uh, yeah, most people don't give them that hard. I mean, their families may, but you know, most people in society, well, that's what they do. But mystical practice, I think, is, uh, is comparable. Uh, it doesn't, it's not something that's evidently giving expression as, you know, when you hear somebody play music. But I think there are many, many analogies there that are, are, are worth considering. And so, you know, what use is music in your life? Well, arguably, none whatsoever. In fact, Canadian customs officials, when they're when somebody's bringing something in and they say, "Well, we're going to charge you duty on that," they say it's a work of art. 
You know what the criteria they use to determine whether something is a work of art or not? Does it have any practical use? If it has practical use, it's not a work of art. Mm -hmm. Right, right. No, but the thing is, you have it. I have these pictures on my wall here, you know, one behind. It just sits there. It's no practical use. But I enjoy it. I enjoy it. And people who come enjoy it and things like that. So, because what we're doing here is we're appealing to or exploring or whatever word you want to use another dimension of what it means to be human. And so, going back to the analogy of music. Why do people devote themselves to music that way? Because that is what gives meaning to their life. Period. Everything else comes secondary. And so this is why I don't see it as, this is why I'm not sure that teeter-totter is the right thing. This is, this is a different, a, a totally different aspect of life. And, and yeah, exactly. That, um, wow, that kind of opens my eyes about something too, is that um, it's like, it's not it's there's not a choice really right there isn't a choice so and and that's what i found in people who are who are um who who practice enough that they are that they just practice that it that it they are moved by something that is beyond um a choice it, 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 they can't not do it, I guess, is the word I would use. You know, it's, it's uh, and it, like writing, I think, is the same way. If you're a natural writer or a poet or whatever, it can be very similar to that, or even a, you know, a painter or, or, or what, right? Yeah. That, 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 I mean, you see that with sometimes children. I mean, they, 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 they know that that's, that's what they're going to do. They do, and that's what they do forever. And it, it, it looks ridiculous to, like you said, everybody around them, but they can't not do it. Right. Um, no. But that seems to be rare in spiritual practice, right? Oh, I don't think so. Do we see it a lot well, in our current culture? Oh yeah. But these are the, you're, you're, these people you're not going to find you know, on Facebook. Oh, okay, good. Well, on Facebook, exactly, exactly. No, you're not, exactly. Yes, it's there, it's there. But they're not, but do they teach? Some of them undoubtedly. But are yeah. these people going to advertise themselves? No. <laughs> they're going to put up a Facebook or a web page, right? And say, look uh, at me? <laughs> not if, probably not. And so it becomes, the question then becomes, how do you find them? That was my <laughs> written right down here in my cue cards. Okay. How would someone new to Buddhist thought incorporate this in practice? And what, how could a teacher help in this? And where would you find a teacher like that? Well, let's go back to Buddha Shakyamuni. What did he do? He looked around and tried everything. <laughs> if, you put, if you put this in harsh terms, and it's good to put it in harsh terms. Yeah. He abandoned his wife and child. I mean, absolutely abandoned them. Okay. He refused to take, uh, to um, fulfill his responsibilities as the son of a uh, local ruler. Okay. So th this is an extremely, at, at the very best, asocial, if not antisocial individual. <laughs> Okay. That's absolutely true. Exactly. Yeah. 
Who did he go and hang out with? The aesthetic, aesthetics, yeah, yeah. he didn't okay. eat. <laughs> and he learned a certain amount of meditation, but he recognized that they could only take him so far. They, didn't, they couldn't answer his questions. So where does the responsibility lie, if we take Buddha, uh, Buddha's life? The responsibility lies in, lies in the individual. I'll give you another example from the Tibetan tradition. The founder of one of the traditions in which I was trained lived in the 11th century, I guess, 11th, 12th, named Chungpa Melger. He, was raised, uh, he started off as a priest, and he was very, uh, that was the native religion, arguably, of Tibet. And uh, he was uh, very well qualified. Uh, and uh, but he wasn't satisfied, and so he uh, turned to a Dzogchen teacher, which is one of the direct awareness practices in the Tibetan tradition, and uh, studied with him and became a very uh, respected Dzogchen teacher. He said, "This doesn't work for me." Uh, and then he went to, uh, and then thought, "I need to go to India," but his parents were uh, quite old. And they said, please don't leave us. We need you to take care of us. Okay. So he stays in Tibet and uh, finds a Mahamudra teacher. Learns something from him, but it still doesn't work. Then he finds another Mahamudra teacher and he studies with him for a short time. And this teacher says to him, well, you know everything I know. And Chimpanajar says under his breath, well, that, that means you know, don't know anything because I don't know anything. And then his parents die. So now I can go to India. So at age 57, he undertakes the journey in the 11th century, the journey from India, Tibet to India. Okay. <laughs> in other words, if you're serious about this, get off your ass. <laughs> I mean, and that may sound, because if you're serious about this, it's serious in the sense that you're looking for, I mean, people are, being, are very serious about trying to make their lives better. And, no argument with that, that if you're serious about seeking a fundamentally different relationship with life, don't go looking on Facebook. Yeah, well, of course, not on Facebook, but but it actually, and and and, and that ties me into another question, which I'll, I was going to save for later, but since it, we're kind of right there now, uh, let's let's talk about it. Um, you know, our culture is changing, clearly. Um, and 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 Buddhism changes with the culture. That's a very good thing. Um, I but yet the traditional practices stay the same. Um, and so there's that well, sort of well, the traditional practices stay traditional. I mean, they it's, you can't go back and alter that. Well, you can alter the presentation of them, right? But you can't alter them in their essence, right? It's it's like Theseus's ship. Okay. Let's, 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 let's not go there. It's just a philosophical. Oh, yeah. Okay. But what about okay? So it's everything's changing in our culture, and and I'm not just talking about Facebook and everything, but things, you know. It, oh, substantial. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and also even from a climate concern issue, people travel less, um, or they or they want to, um, and and things, you know, businesses run on virtual meetings now. Um, everything's virtual. You and I are doing this virtually, right? I mean, I, I couldn't come out to California to interview you. 
how much I would have liked that. I couldn't do it. Um, <clears throat> and I'm certainly, you don't want to come to Rochester, New York at this time of the year, but, um, but everything is, everything is virtual. So, um, so, you know, all teaching and teachers and sanghas have, have become a, a virtual experience. Buddhist communities actually have become virtual in many, many ways. Um, it, it, you know, you say, don't go seeking a teacher on Facebook, and I'm not bringing this back to haunt you on this one, but I'm saying um, it's like everything is, and I think it's a good thing in a lot of ways, because if, if you're never, like we talked about at the beginning, if we were never inspired or exposed to something, we'll never take up practice, right? If you're safe. But if you are, then, um, then, then I, I honestly think there's a, there's less and less like Buddhist centers, um, for, for many reasons. Um, I think there's more and more, not that this is anything new, there's more and more scandal in Buddhist traditions, um, and every tradition that people see. And so these virtual communities, I think can become a safe place, but how far can we go? as a practitioner in those sort of communities, then where do you, what's step two? How many other issues do you want to stuff into this question? Uh, yeah. Okay. It, well, I shouldn't have brought up that uh, scandal stuff. I, well, I, as soon as, as soon as I said it, I thought that was, we didn't need to go there. So well, the, the scandal stuff, I think uh, can be disposed of fairly quickly. Yeah. Uh, what most of the scandals indicate that any, any attempt to import Asian autocratic structures into Western society ends up in disaster. Yeah. That's it. You know, we, we now know that's the case. <laughs> and it's been proven many times over, exactly. Yeah. I mean, how yeah. many times do you need to, for this to be demonstrated? You know, so anyway, uh, but, and certainly Buddhism wasn't, that's not unique to Buddhism. It's, uh, you, you look at, uh, some of the hierarchical structures in Christianity and they have the same problem. Obviously. Yeah. So, so here it, it actually suggests that hierarchy, um, it is, or, or the way hierarchy is practiced now is, is, is problematic, but that's a whole nother issue. So right. The, the word virtue, uh, virtual. Uh, it, it was an unfortunate choice, uh, I think. No, no, it's not your fault because everybody uses it. You're, you're just using common usage. And when I say it was an unfortunate choice, I'm talking about common usage. I mean, many times a word is used and it becomes to mean something and it turns out, you know, it's pity they chose that word because that's become problematic. He, he, somebody pointed out to me many years ago that uh, <clears throat> what the... Uh, World Wide Web is, uh, and most digital technologies are, in the end, are simulation technologies, okay? They simulate things. And <clears throat> I wrote a paper on this, uh, on Buddhism and uh, modern media, oh, about six years ago, it's, and I can send you the link if you're interested. But <clears throat> one of the conclusions that I came to is that as time goes on, and we're seeing this, is it becomes uh, cheaper and easier to live a simulated life than a real life. Okay. And that's essentially what the matrix was about. Yes, it was. Yeah. And <clears throat> if we focus our conversation about 
approaching Buddhism as a mystical practice, you cannot practice mysticism as a simulation. Just, in fact, it just doesn't make any sense. Can you use uh, the, uh, uh, some of the technologies that are available to us to extend our reach and uh, interaction and so forth, just as we are doing now? Well, the answer to that is obviously yes. But I, I think, you know, we're having this conversation uh, over with, with um, Zoom, but I think you, you, you would agree, and you can tell me whether you do or not, that if we were in the same room, it would actually be a different conversation. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, well, it might be. I think we're under the structure of a podcast too, but um, so that makes it a little different. Um, but yeah, I think there's a little more. Um, I'll give you yeah. an example. I cannot look you right in the eyes. No, we can't do that. Yes, you're right, and and you feel you feel much more, um, and you can pick up intuitive things. That's I guess that's the mystical thing. I guess in a, in in a sense, right? Well, what I'm saying here is. <clears throat> there is no substitute for face-to-face -face meetings. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, is this an improvement over a telephone? Yes. yes. Is this an improvement over email? Yes, because you have so much less information in those mediums. So there's a great improvement in that sense, but it's not the same. No. And <clears throat> the, uh, <clears throat> so th this is, I think we need to pay attention to this, that, when people say they want to do it virtually, uh, well, what are they really saying? Are they saying, I don't want to get out of my, uh, leave my living room? <laughs> In many cases, that's what they're saying. I learned through some rather unfortunate experiences not to work with students over the internet unless I had actually met them in person. Really? Yes even if you were going to work for, for a long term? Yes. You wouldn't? Yes. No, I, I, and especially if I was going to work for them, uh, work with them over a period of years. I wanted to be, at some point, uh, I, and at some point in that, I wanted to actually have the personal experience. And without that personal experience, there was always something missing in the relationship. Hmm. Now, I have one of my students is, uh, teaches. I, I think she's evolved into a really quite a good teacher and uh she works with people over phone and over skype but she's adopted the same principle and so you know when i was when i was teaching and people would say can i do this I said yes but we need to meet in person at some point don't have to start there but at some point it has to happen <clears throat> and i think it also has the fact that there's a certain kind of connection that only happens when you meet in person which doesn't happen over yeah i it, that I, it's a bit um um i find it pessimistic actually a little bit but <laughs> um i be convenient huh is it inconvenient well, not, not inconvenient so much as um y yeah it's inconvenient but i think i don't know i i just feel that that as as time goes by it, it becomes harder and harder to to i mean obviously it's not like someone having to take the trip uh, to the, you know, from India, from Tibet to India, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, you know, uh, making a big deal about this, but, but if, if like, 
if if there's it's all a question of how important it yeah, is. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, yeah, and and it's a question on. You're right. It is because even money is no object if if it's that important, right? Nothing can. If you have to do it, you have to do it, and nothing will stop you. Um, you well, rarely see that I, I, I commitment. Went, I went to hear a blues musician uh, a few months ago. He's in his 80s now, and he's continuing to play because uh, he feels that uh, something really important is, is passing in blues with with, with, with generation with people like B.B. Uh, King, mm -hmm. all of these people passing, you know, a whole, some, something in, that all of these people exemplified is passing. Right. Now, he never had a teacher this guy. But what he did was he would just go to the clubs in Chicago and he would sit right in front and watch these blues players play. And that's how he learned. He watched and then he would go back and he would work. And then he'd come back the next night and watch how they did it again until he could do it himself. So that was how he learned. And there's actually Chino, who is a uh, Korean teacher in the 12th century. Seems he did something pretty similar, because he never actually had a teacher too. But he, he he went around China for a while, really observing these people. So, and, and that's how he absorbed it. Now, it takes a pretty rare individual to be able to learn. I couldn't learn how to play a musical instrument that way, but that's how he did mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, You see, but what I'm saying here is how important is it? That's true. Now, if... And, and to try to take the pessimism out for myself and no, no one else in the feeling this way um, is, you know, I think, I think about like the podcast audience that I have. And I think a, a lot of the pot, a lot of podcast audiences that follow a Buddhist podcast are sort of people who are new to Buddhism and they're just looking to grab onto anything. Like you said, they, they want to make their life better or they want something else from life. All the things that we discussed earlier, um, you know, and they, and they say, what book should I read? You know, who should I listen to? And, and, and all, and all that. Um, honestly, it, it is, it, it is, I've had this podcast for a little over a year now and I get emails pretty consistently, you know, what book should I read? What book should I read? What book should I read? You know, and what other podcast should I listen to? And, um, well, this, this is the tyranny of choice, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's exactly it. That's a, it's, they float, you know, like you said, you, if you observe a bunch of blues musicians, maybe you can, whether you have the direct teaching or not, maybe you can pick something up. If you, if you go and sit at the feet of enough, many teachers and lamas and so forth you you can pick something up um but in this case i'm not sure like dialing into uh a hundred different buddhist podcasts is going to cut it i mean or, or that's because it's it's not face to face yeah yeah and, but but are we leaving think, our my podcast audience like like it's hopeless. I mean, what? Or, or you're just no, saying, get off your butt and keep going, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, the thing is, a person in your position is, um, you know, is a curator. 
That's right. And I'm not a teacher. I'm a transmitter. <laughs> well, no, but I, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm specifically using the word curator, which is uh -huh. not a teacher and it's not a translator. That is, and when people ask you, what book should I read? They're asking you to curate the web. That is to select out of the vast, and that's why I said this is the tyranny of the vast. You have a certain amount of experience. You have a familiarity with the material. They are trusting your ability to select good material, which you know is arguably what you do with your podcast. This is material I think is worth listening to. This is material I think is worth reading. Right. Okay. And that's it. And I imagine you have a recommended reading list on your podcast website and things like that. And so that's what you do. And that is an extremely valuable service because there is just so much and people often don't have the knowledge or the criteria. They don't even know what the criteria are to be able to ascertain what is quality or not. So someone acting in a curating role is extremely valuable in making real contribution here. Okay, so we're not going to leave them. Uh, we're not going to leave it in pessimism here. We're going to say that um, the 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 sort of the evolution of where things have gone because of technology and the web and everything is 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 a good thing, and it still exposes people. And if they're if if they still have to do it, they will find a way to right. find a teacher and practice. Yeah, um, and the curating is an important step, right? Exactly. They'll probably go to someone like you, who's a curator, and things like that, and that leads them to the next step. But at some point, they're going to have to get out of their living room. <laughs> okay, that's good. And then <laughs> if, if we leave them with nothing else today, we could say, um, get out of your living room, right? <laughs> so that's, that's a wonderful piece of advice. And my teacher says, keep going. And I think that is the same thing. It's like, don't don't stop at this, right? Just keep going, keep going, and you, you'll discover what you need to discover or what you have to discover. So um, one last little thing, though, um, and, and this is, I probably shouldn't leave it at this. Um, I should have started it at this. This is probably very awkward and clumsy of me as a podcast host, but hey, so be it. Um, in and you and other and and if my podcast listeners have no familiarity with you, they don't know this. But in your books, you refer directly to troubles in your practice. Um, uh, uh, physical. I to, I, uh, I'm not unique in that respect. It, exactly, and that's one of the reasons why I'm bringing it up. I think it it there's there's it's wonderful to share. I, so there's, you know, misery loves company kind of thing. Um, but it's wonderful to share this stuff because it wouldn't be practiced if it was easy, right? Um, but you shared like physical, you said physical and emotional and psychological troubles, but yet you were, were under rigorous practice conditions like three-year retreats and so forth, which I think most of the people who are listening to me have never experienced or anything like that. Um, I wondered if you could share a little bit of that, just a little bit of that, and what that brought to you uh, as a, a practitioner. Well, there's a lot of different ways I could go with that one. Um, <laughs> uh, you'd like me to leave your listeners on an up note, I suppose. Well, I well, I was trying to go there, but that's why I, re, I kind of rethought why making this the last question was probably not a good thing. Um, 
<laughs> so go where it goes. Let's go where it goes. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I had a lot of trouble. And uh, that was difficult. And this takes us actually back to an earlier part of our conversation. People asked me uh, after the three-year retreat, and as I continued to work with quite serious difficulties while I was in LA, uh, why did you keep going? Why didn't you stop? And uh, I had to ask myself that question. And it was that question uh, that led me actually into moving into the language of calling and mysticism and, and the analogy with art. Because I dug around uh, and I could not find any, uh, any psychological explanation. Wasn't, I, I couldn't find a, any form of compensation uh, or you know, childhood trauma or any of the various stuff that people throw around as motivations for things in life these days. Uh, mm -hmm. the, uh, I'm sure that I could probably find a psychologist who could construct that whole scenario. And as I kept reflecting on this question, because this question was asked to me more than once, uh, mm -hmm. I realized that the, uh, the idea of stopping actually never occurred to me. It just never occurred to me. Uh, I, I didn't, I, 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 one point, uh, for a very long period of time, every possible door to spiritual practice was closed to me. Uh, and that was very hard. Uh, but I couldn't move in any direction. Uh, and, uh, and I didn't stop. <laughs> Which, you know, you say it that way. I'm, I'm reminded of something that Peter Kingsley wrote in uh, The Dark Places of Wisdom. He said, if you're lucky in your life, you'll reach a point where you can't go forward. That the road forward leads to huh. hell. The road to the left leads to hell. And the road to the right leads to the hell. And if you turn around and start walking back along the road that you came, it leads to complete and utter hell. Hmm. This is if you're lucky. There's nothing you can do. And because when you encounter that, then you have to come to terms with what is actually truly important and truly meaningful in your life. You have no choice. And that is the blessing of it. And this is not the path that most people want to take in life. And I think that needs to be pointed out very, very clearly. But you look back at people like Buddha Shakyamuni or Chumpanadra, those are two people that I've mentioned in this conversation. They weren't any different. I mean, Buddha ate one grain of rice, one sesame seed, and one drop of water every day for seven years. By any modern standard, that's complete insanity. And yet, what are you and I doing? Following in his footsteps. <laughs> <laughs> Except for the eating part. Yes, I agree. No, absolutely. That is that's 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 beautifully said. And I do think it although to some it may seem like a 
a drastic, horrible way to end this podcast. I think it's a wonderful way to end this podcast because I think it ties it all together um, in my mind about the mystic, the the other, the vertical dimension, whatever you want to call it, where there has to be a sort of, uh, uh, you know, ineffable drive, something that is happening to you that, that makes absolutely no sense to anyone around you and that could actually be termed crazy. Let, let me try to wrap it up this way, if you'll permit me. Sure. Uh, Joseph Campbell said, follow your bliss. And uh, I think I know what he was referring to. But people have taken and run with that in quite different directions, shall we say. <laughs> the vertical dimension that we've talked about briefly here, people are probably going to say, well, how do you get in touch with the vertical dimension? Well, that's actually very easy. What inspires awe? When you feel awe, you're in touch with the vertical dimension. What is awe? Awe is the feeling of being intimately connected with something that is infinitely greater than you are. So what I would say here is follow your awe. Yes, exactly. See where that leads you. <laughs> Perfect. I think that's the title of this podcast now. Um, thank you. I, I never title them until they're done because that's when it all happens. So you just did it for me. Thank you. I didn't have to struggle. Um, for many reasons, thank you, Ken. It was just wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. As I mentioned in the intro, the ending was a little abrupt, but I hope, like me, the conversation will linger in your thoughts and meditations. At the beginning of this episode, I talked about my book being out there and it has been spotted in the wild. Some of you have posted pictures on the Everyday Buddhism Facebook group holding my book or showing the book in your home. If you want to do that, that would be great. I will feature them in promotion, so uh, show me. Show me the book. And if you want to share one of my book promotional posts on your Facebook page, that too would be awesome so that more people find out about it. If you haven't picked up a copy yet, go to the Everyday Buddhism website, www.everyday-buddhism.com, and click on the link to buy the ebook or paperback on Amazon. I appreciate any and all book purchases and would love it if you left reviews on the book page on Amazon. Reviews are very helpful to me and to other seekers who would benefit from reading the book. Think of leaving a review as a practice of right effort, right speech, and right action. And if you would like to become a sponsor of this podcast and set up a recurring or one-time donation, go to the new Buy Me a Coffee tab on my website, www.everydaybuddhism.com, to buy me a coffee and become a supporter of everything Everyday Buddhism will hopefully grow to be. And soon, you will be able to join our new membership community at the same place, Buy Me a Coffee. Also, don't forget, if you would like to talk with me and, other about, and others about these podcast episodes in the meantime, and as we continue on, um, consider joining the Everyday Buddhism Sangha. It's growing, vital, supportive, and a compassionate group of people 
to share our everyday lives through a Buddhist lens. The Sangha meets live via Zoom video conference every other week, and the details are on the main page of the website. Again, Happy New Year, Happy Day, and until next time, keep making your everydays better. Mm -hmm.